Hey, let's study together. I, I know last week we skipped over Hebrews because we'd been through that recently and we, we looked together at James. And this week we're going to skip over 1 Peter because we're looking at that currently on Sunday morning. And we're going to go to 2 Peter. I think in our series we have skipped over Exodus and Hebrews and now 1 Peter. And we get to the very end, we'll come back and we'll address those three before we move on to our next Wednesday night series. But tonight I want us to look at 2 Peter. I find the background to First and Second Peter and Jude to be just fascinating. And there's a, a little pressure here at certain points to give consideration to a lot of what's going on in the culture that lies behind the books of First and Second Peter and Jude to really appreciate um, the significance of what Peter is describing at a number of points along the way. I'm going to try to share some of that in our time together tonight without going completely Bible nerd on you, but you'll have to hang in there with me at a couple of points along the way. Second Peter is, to Peter's ministry, what Second Timothy is to the Apostle Paul's ministry. Second Peter is functionally Peter's last will and testament. In fact, in Second Peter chapter, wake you up with a reminder, knowing that I will soon lay aside my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ has also shown me. In other words, I'm going to die soon. And there are some things that I want to remind you of, some things that I want you to remember for the days to come. Peter is essentially saying, I'm about to check out, and I want to make sure some foundations have been shored among you that the gospel continues to thrive and the kingdom continues to advance in the days that are to come. This is... Peter's last written word to the church, a call to remember the message of the apostles, to honor the Lord's commandments, and to pursue growth in grace. In fact, if there are two key themes, two themes that stand out above all others in 2 Peter, it is to grow in grace, and Peter demonstrates this emphasis by beginning the letter with a call to grow in grace, and concluding the letter with a call to grow in grace. So grow in grace is key theme one, and key theme two is to remember. We touched on this a little bit last week in dealing with James chapter one and the whole concept of being not hearers of the word only, but doers also. James seems to be pressing there that, that you would give yourself over to obedience, to obeying, to doing the word that already abides in you. In other words, James is not about introducing new information. He's just saying to the church, you just need to do the things you already know to do. You, you know what is right. You have been instructed. Now do, implement, make application of what you have been informed of. Peter is essentially saying the same thing again and again and again. You might benefit from reading through the three chapters of 2 Peter and just underlining or highlighting the word remember or remind. Again and again and again, Peter says, I want to remind you of the message of the apostles. I want to remind you of the message of the scriptures. I want you to remember what you've been instructed in, what you have been taught, what you have learned in times past. A considerable concern of Peter in 2 Peter is the presence of false teachers within the church. There are those who have scattered themselves within the body who are teaching misinformation. They are false teachers, as Peter describes them here in 2 Peter, and they seek to lead many astray. 
a particular focus of the false teacher's message within the church is that Jesus is not coming again. That seems to be a concern for Peter, that they would understand that in spite of the Lord's patience with his people, he is not slack concerning his promise. Jesus will come again. As assuredly as Christ has come the first time, Christ will come again. And he counsels the church as to how they ought to regard the Lord's patience or perceived slowness in returning or in sending the Son to gather his church in exact judgment against the world. Peter says, don't don't get confused by this new message the false prophets or false teachers are bringing. Jesus has promised he would come again, and indeed he will. The message of of 2 Peter rather begins again in chapter 1 with this concept of growing in grace. There's a rather standard introduction in verses 1 and 2, and then Peter gets to something of the substance of the letter itself in verse number 3. Peter, writing here, says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. He has given us, by knowledge of Him, through His divine power, all that we need for life and godliness. In other words, He has equipped us with every resource, All that you ever need to grow in grace, God has given you in the gift of faith whereby you have come to know Jesus. So you don't need faith plus something else. You don't need faith plus other resources. You don't need faith plus self-help techniques. You don't need faith plus some other resource or source of encouragement or help. You just need faith in Christ. And through faith in Christ, we have been granted everything we need in order to grow in grace and mature in Jesus. In verse 4, he says, By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness." And the language of supplement here is not about adding to. It's not about supplement in the sense that we often think. The idea here is that we're growing in grace. We're, we're, we're blooming. We are blossoming by the power of the gospel. And among the fruit that the faith is bearing in our life is that of goodness. And goodness blossoms further with knowledge. And knowledge blossoms further with self-control. And self-control further with endurance. And endurance further with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection further with love. Growing in grace means moving forward in terms of, of progress. We're wrestling with some things in the beginning, but we're growing in grace, empowered by the Spirit of God. We're growing in goodness. We're learning how to exercise knowledge. We're learning in knowledge how to exercise self-control. Over the course of time, we're learning self-control with endurance. Over the course of time, self-control with endurance is producing holiness or godliness in us. Godliness producing brotherly love and brotherly love, ultimately love for the church. Verse 8, for these qualities are yours and are increasing. They will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. A person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. 
For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied to you. Peter has essentially described the Christian journey in a few short verses. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man can boast. That's certain, right? Spelled out clearly for us in the teaching of the New Testament. But that gift of faith granted us by God begins to transform our life from the very moment of our conversion until our glorification at the moment of our death. Producing in us fruit worthy of repentance, reflective of our regeneration. By faith in Jesus, we become a new person. We are born again. Just as a child is born into infancy and grows and matures steadily over the duration of its life. So too, we who are born again are born into infancy. And over the course of life, but steadily toward adulthood and maturity, we are growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is ultimately what Peter is describing in our passage. Now, there's something about the way the New Testament talks about assurance in salvation that I think is different than the way many people today talk about assurance in our salvation. Today, when, when, when we're aversion or, or a, a moment of great change or transition, and that's a, re- that's a good thing to do, right? You, you must have, as a Christian, a conversion story, a testimony of how God saved you from your sin, that decisive moment of faith commitment when you believed on Jesus and called out to God for grace and mercy that could only be found in Him. And, that, and that's reflected in the New Testament testimony when considering a person's conversion. But what's also considered is what God is doing, not just in the past, but in the present. Here, Peter is talking about a present moment self-assessment. Are we growing in grace at the moment? Do the, the virtues that Peter describes here, goodness and knowledge and self-control and endurance and godliness and brotherly affection and love, do these characterize your walk with Jesus at the present hour? Now, I'm not discounting the possibility although I think it should be a rare possibility that there can be seasons of tremendous backsliding in our life. But listen, these virtues ought to characterize our journey with Jesus with blips along the way because we are sinful people. There ought to be a Godward trajectory about our life from the moment of our conversion until the moment of our death when we are enveloped in the arms of Jesus Christ who bled and died for us. That's what Peter is describing in our passage. So he says in verse 12, Therefore I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you have. Again, remembering what we already know. I I was talking to someone about a a friend, of a mutual friend, um, I think a mutual friend, um, and we were all all involved in the conversation, all, all preachers, but... Our, our mutual friend was critical of our friend, and, and he said he always preaches the same thing. And I just remember walking away from that conversation thinking, well, duh, what else are you going to do? We just, we just always preach the same thing. We, don't have, we just have one message. That's all we have. It's the message of the gospel. And we, we never grow weary of, of hearing that, right? We sing, or we used to sing anyway, 
of how we love to tell the story because those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. But isn't it true of us that as believers in the gospel, the preaching of the gospel still warms our heart? Like if I'm, if I'm picking the subject for Sunday morning sermon, it's gospel. Because that's what we need, right? That's the message that unbelievers need to believe and be born again. But it's also the message that believers need to believe again today and believe again tomorrow. It's not just the message that saves us from our sin. It's the message that sanctifies and keeps us over the course of time, that that sets us on that Godward trajectory for all of our days. It's not so much about gathering new information. I, I know that we can have this fascination with understanding what we regard as the depths of the Scripture. But listen, the depths of the Scripture is the message of the Gospel. How deep and how wide the Father's love for us expressed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. It's not these obscure concepts or systematics of theology that represent the true depths of the Scripture. It is the shed blood of Jesus for us. Those are the true depths of the Scripture in which we may drown for the rest of our days in the glories of God toward us. Those things sustain us. So I'm not trying to squelch your hunger to know or understand more about the Word of God, but I do want to encourage you that the message of the gospel is where we ought to concentrate our thoughts and and fix our attention and meditate and dwell richly on the treasures of what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus. It's probably not that you need more information to be a better follower of Jesus. It is far more likely that you need to merely remember what has been delivered to you, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Peter says, I'm writing to remind you about these things, things that you know, established truths, to prompt you to relish what Jesus has done for us. In verse 13, he says, I consider it right, as long as I'm in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder, knowing that I'll soon lay aside this tent as Jesus has shown me. Verse 15, I'll make every effort, uh, also make every effort that you may be able to recall these things at any time after my departure. I want you to remember them. And to some extent, he says, I want you to memorize them. I was encouraged by Chris's exhortation Sunday morning to memorize the scripture. You realize that rote memory, memorizing things, is no longer in vogue in education. Google is now fashionable. And, and there's a, a laying aside of interest in the rote memorization of almost any content because this is the age of information and we can find things with a few clicks of a mouse. But the Word of God does not function or operate that way. In fact, the psalmist says it is designed to be hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. The way the Spirit often works in the life of the believer, empowering us to overcome sin and ingraining conviction when we're out of step, is by bringing to our remembrance the Word of God hidden away in our heart, bringing about rebuke, correction, and even equipping us for the work of ministry to which He's called us. In that moment of, of ministry, the illumination of a verse that speaks or counsels to the situation that is at hand, this is the way the Word of God operates in the heart of human beings. Commit yourself to the memorization of Scripture. At least, Peter says, commit yourself to the memorization of the principles of the gospel. In verse 16, 
Peter turns to what I think is really the substance of the book. He begins with grow in grace, and he ends with grow in grace, but here in the middle is the body of the letter, and there are three sections in the body of the letter. The, the first really speaks to us about sound teaching. He's going to turn to false teaching in just a moment. We might call this true teaching or good prophecy, whereas the next section is about false teaching or bad prophecy. He says in verse 16, we didn't follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, we brought to you what we had seen with our own eyes. John says something very similar. I was looking with some other brothers this past week at the first few verses of 1 John 1. He says, we saw him with our eyes and we touched him with our hands. And he even uses a, a Greek verb with a lot of emphasis to say it was more than we just observed him casually. We looked intently upon him. He was made manifest before us. This was the experience of the apostles. And they were so convinced and convicted by those experiences, having seen Jesus with their eyes, having beheld him, having touched him with their hands, that they would die for this message. There is a unique authority enjoyed by the apostles that Peter is pressing here at this moment. Peter's saying, we saw him. It was our experience, not only that we were with him in his earthly ministry, but that we observed him in his resurrected state. We didn't come to you with cleverly contrived myths, but with a firsthand testimony of the living Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected from the grave. In verse 17, he says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Peter says, not only do we as apostles, having been with him in his earthly ministry and having beheld him in his resurrection, attest to the truthfulness of the gospel, but God himself baptizes Jesus. There the Son of God is baptized. And John says that those on hand observed that the Spirit of God came from heaven as a dove descending on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the voice of the Father boomed forth from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's, it's a really a pretty powerful passage in the Gospels where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all actively involved in what God does in a singular moment in time. And all three persons of the Godhead are featured prominently in a single paragraph. Peter says it's not just that we apostles testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. It is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, specific to this quotation, God has spoken audibly from heaven, and not in that obscure, charismatic, mystical kind of way that we use when we say, well, the Lord told me. I'm not so sure about that to start with, but in any event, God spoke from heaven. God spoke from heaven, and he said of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In verse 18, the Bible says, we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we're with him on the holy mountain. So we've the prophetic word strongly confirmed. It's not just that God spoke at the baptism of Jesus, but there's this episode in the ministry of Jesus when Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And those three apostles, not knowing what to expect, representing the inner circle of the twelve, at once witnessed that Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. Something of the veil of flesh was rolled back, and the glory of Jesus was beheld before them. He was transfigured before their eyes. Moses and Elijah met with them, and the very voice they had once heard at the baptism of Jesus now conversed with the Son of God, Moses and Elijah, at the Mount of Transfiguration. It's not just that God spoke once, Peter says, but on multiple occasions, we saw him in his earthly ministry. We heard the voice of the Father affirm him in his baptism. We heard the voice of God commune with him at the Mount of Transfiguration, and we beheld him intently, even in his resurrection. Continues in verse 19, you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The the language of morning star as it relates to Jesus, kind of unique language. In in Numbers 22, I think is the passage, there's reference, Numbers 24, there's reference to the Messiah who comes as the star of Jacob. But that's really the only thing that comes close to this idea of Jesus as the morning star that rises in our heart until you come to Revelation 22 where Jesus himself speaks and refers to himself as the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Hold fast to the prophetic word, not the contrived and silly myths that were so prominent in the first century and that persist even to this day. But hold fast to the message of the gospel, attested to as truthful by the apostles who would bleed and die for the sake of that message. Hold fast to the message of the gospel, attested to as true by the very voice of God booming forth from heaven. Hold fast to the message of the gospel, attested to as as true by the very word of God. Verse 20, Peter says, first of all, you should know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter talks here of the sophistication of method by which God has provided us with and preserved for us His Holy Word. I I, I, I kind of tongue-in-cheek a moment ago, made a little jab at this language of the Lord told me this or that. I know the way that's intended at times, and usually it's, in, it's intended in a well-meaning way. What we can mean by that sometimes in a positive way, in an acceptable way, is the Lord is leading in some way, or there's a biblical principle that's relevant to the decision that's before us at that moment, or we're led by principle or by the Spirit's illumination of His Word or principle in that moment, and I, and I get that. But I, I think it's healthy that we really look to, to sort of fine-tune and, and be more precise when we talk about how the Lord is leading us and, and choose rather not to use the language of God speaking to us in some way. It, it even is a rub a little bit for me sometimes when we talk about Christian music and we use the language of inspiration. You may have been inspired in that moment in the traditional sense in the way you can be inspired by a Hallmark Christmas movie to write that lyric. 
But within Christian circles, it seems beneficial for us to, pre- to reserve the language of inspiration to the Word of God, which intends something far greater than anything a Hallmark movie can stir in your heart or anything that you might sense or feel in a given moment. God has moved heaven and earth to provide for us His Word and through the ages to preserve His Word as it is. And we ought to take that deadly seriously. And Peter says this is not something that just came about arbitrarily. We just got together and came up with some stories. This is a message for which we would ultimately die. A message inspired by God, granted through human prophets, yes, but no less the words of our God. This is the nature of good teaching. Then he turns in chapter 2 to false teaching. And uh, the tone is decidedly less pleasant here in chapter number 2. It says in verse 1, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their unrestrained ways, and the way of truth will be blasphemed because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. Let me just say a word here. I remember in the early days of ministry, back in the dark ages of the 2000s. Y'all remember back that far? And I, I, just, I remember being constantly encouraged as a young pastor to stand firm against, against falsehoods and false teaching and those kinds of things. And those were well-intended and, and good. That's a, that's a good exhortation. But I, I, I think somehow along the way, We've, we've chosen something less than discernment. And somewhere along the way, grace has dropped from the equation. When we're, when we're talking about identifying false teaching and false teachers, that, that's not a call to become the theology police. But to exercise good discernment, to assess the content and the character of a ministry before arriving at firm conclusions about the nature of the ministry itself, whether it be true or false. I throw that out there because it seems like those that should be characterized as false teachers gain great notoriety and even popularity for their message. But those who are really pressing into the culture and advancing the kingdom on some difficult fronts are often identified as the problematic ones. And what I want you to see, and what I think Peter is describing on some level here, a discernment radar, sometimes my discernment radar goes off. And usually over the course of time, my discernment radar proves to be fairly accurate. Most false teaching that's effective is, is not going to be the kind of thing that you can readily identify in black and white. It's going to be a soft distortion of the truth. And it usually will fly. And sometimes it has the tone of truthfulness because we are so geared to defend the truth if it's stated in a certain way, with the right kind of cadence, with the right kind of tone, if it's impassioned in the right ways, if it celebrates the right features of the culture, it's a really easy sale. I can name some guys that are really popular within conservative circles 
who I wouldn't give you a nickel for as a gospel preacher, for the character of their lives. And, and, and they have long since departed in terms of, of their personal life from the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. But people just gobble them up on Facebook, right? And then I can point you to some guys who for one reason or another seem to be the constant target of criticism when they're doing really good, sound gospel work advancing the kingdom on fronts that are incredibly difficult to do ministry on. So this is not as simple, as plain as what you might think it is. And nothing in the New Testament would suggest that it is. P Peter speaks sternly of false teaching and the need to snuff it out, to be aware of its presence within the body. But he in no way suggests that it's always easy to identify. Look to verse 4. Now there's a transition here. We're talking about identifying false teaching, but here Peter is shifting to the assurance of God's judgment against it. Eventually, God is going to deal with the false teacher and the false teaching. Verse 4, he says, if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to ruin, making them an example to those who were going to be ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral, for as he lived among them, that righteous man tormented himself day by day with the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. The message here is that God knows how to judge the unrighteous and God knows how to save his people. He assures them of that. Make no mistake about it, God will one day vindicate his righteousness in absolute justice. Wrath will be brought against the world, those who would reject the grace of God, who would disobey the message of the gospel, and salvation will come to those who have taken refuge under the blood of Jesus Christ. He uses three examples of, the, of our inability to escape judgment. The unrighteous will definitely come under judgment. He uses the angels who sin. I find this fascinating, and it shows up in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and then again in Jude. What Peter is describing here has its origins in Genesis chapter 6. This is the Bible nerd section of our Bible study time together. In Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says that in those days, that the sons of God beheld the daughters of men, looked upon them longingly, they lay together, and it seems at least by implication that the product of that connection were the giants of old, those men of renown. Now Genesis 6 is unclear about what's really happening in that passage, whether it's a reference to a certain group of men that enjoyed status or great men who looked upon the daughters of men and they somehow came together and produced men of renown, or if this is some type of scenario or background explanation as to the presence of giants in the ancient world as they're described in the Old Testament. But there are a number of works that follow after in the centuries after Genesis 6. In fact, most of them happen in the three or 400 years leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. 
that expand upon the Genesis 6 story. And in that expansion, most popularly the book of Enoch, which is referenced in the book of Jude, Genesis 6 is explained as fallen angels who look down upon the daughters of men who are described in Enoch as watchers, but who lusted after the daughters of men, lay with them, and produced from that relationship an irredeemable people, a people that were beyond redemption because they represented this hybrid fallen angel, demon, and the daughters, the sons and daughters of men. Now what follows after that is the flood account, and what Enoch suggests is, in fact it more than suggests that, it, it outright states it, that the flood comes in order to cleanse the world of this presence of irredeemable people, this population of people who are forever bent on doing what is wrong. Now from time to time someone will come and say, Jude makes reference to the book of Enoch, and, and, and Jude does make specific reference to the book of Enoch. So why is the book of Enoch not in the Bible? Because the book of Enoch is not biblical. There was never a time in the history of God's people when Enoch was regarded as authoritative in the same way the other books of the Bible were. We, we tend to think that the first century is like this really sterile laboratory in which these spiritual things were happening. But remember, the world is turning around Palestine. There is a culture in which the gospel is being born and, and ever expanding. It's, it's not that they only had the books of the Bible to read. There were libraries of other volumes being written, many of which had spiritual significance and many of which became quite popular within the culture. I, I liken the book of Enoch to the Chronicles of Narnia. Lots of people within the church know the Chronicles of Narnia, and C.S. Lewis is the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, a, a Christian man who endeavored to express Christian values and to indicate the goodness of God at times in the story, the Chronicles of Narnia. We even make reference to Jesus with the Aslan language at times, reminding ourselves that indeed Aslan is on the move, that God is at work around us, that in unseen and underappreciated ways, God is powerfully at work through his people. And sermon from page 36 from volume 2 of the Chronicles of Narnia. But it's very much in our mind. We're able to use the illustration of those stories in order to advance Christian principles, to give explanation to the way these things work. So this occurs not only here in 2 Peter, but also in 1 Peter chapters 2 and chapters 3, and it's referred to again in the book of Jude. And there are lots of ways that Enoch stands sort of in the background of, of these writings and many other gospel passages i give you a good example of where this shows up in the ministry of Jesus. You remember, you remember when the Sadducees came to Jesus and they said there was a woman and she married this man and he died. And then she married his brother and he died. And then she married his brother and he died. This happened seven times. And, and then they ask in heaven, whose wife is she going to be? And, and, and Jesus does something that's really marvelous here. He appeals to the book that they would have affirmed, the books of Moses. The Sadducees only believed in the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he, he says to them that you don't understand the power of God or how heaven actually is. You don't understand the scriptures. And he appeals to the books of Moses to prove his point, that God is the God of the living and not the dead. And then he says, it's not like that in heaven, for there is in heaven neither marrying or giving in marriage. 
Now, he's providing some insight into what heaven is like, but he's also taking a jab at the book of Enoch because Sadducees don't like the book of Enoch. So he appeals to their book, and then he rejects what they reject in advancing this gospel principle. You're you're making a mountain out of a molehill here. You've misunderstood the fundamental nature of heaven and of the power of God. It's not like in the book of Enoch where angels are marrying women and all that craziness. It is as Moses described, God is the God of the living and not of the dead. So you have there the Enoch story in the background of Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees, and it appears in a number of other places. Well, there are, there's other things happening in the culture that lies behind the writings of the New Testament, and sometimes understanding those phenomena behind the biblical book can help us to see and appreciate far more of what's going on. When he talks about fallen angels here, I can guarantee you that this would signal in the mind of Peter's audience what was foretold or what was described in the book of Enoch, which is a situation where those fallen angels were imprisoned by God. They were cast into imprisonment by God where they're being held until their final sentence is passed, which is their everlasting judgment and torment in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. On course. And we want to walk with God because if judgment is good for angels who live in such proximity to God, surely there's a place in that prison for us. He cites angels and their fallenness and the assurance of judgment that is to come. He cites the ancient world in the days of Noah and all who were judged under a flood of God's wrath. He cites Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed. And then he finishes with this example of Lot. And it's where we'll have to finish tonight because we're going to be out of time. Not only is Peter saying God will assuredly send his son Jesus to judge the unrighteous. He's also saying to the faithfulness has become popular in the church that just as God can bring judgment against the unrighteous, he will bring justice for the righteous. That just like God brings the sword of judgment, God brings salvation by the blood of his son. Just like he could save Lot, just one man and his family out of a multitude of ungodly in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that exchange? Lord, if there's 50 people there, would you allow the cities to stand? God says, for the sake of 50, I'll not destroy those cities. And Abraham says, what about 40? God says, for the sake of 40, I'll not destroy those cities. And, and he really stretches the thing out. You know, he could have just cut to the chase. And he goes, 25 and 20 and 15. And, and one last time, Lord, How about 10? And God says, for the sake of 10, I'll not destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God illustrates in history his ability to save the needle from the haystack. And in in citing this example from Israel's history, he reminds us that no matter how crooked or perverse our generation may be, that God's eye is always on the sparrow, that he knows his people, that, that he is able to save and to save to the uttermost, that we're not lost in, in, this, in this chaos of unrighteousness, but that he sees us and he promises in an instant, just as judgment is to come, so too salvation comes full and free for the people of God. He, he, he's encouraging us, even at the prospect of judgment, 
that there's a safe haven, a place of refuge for us in the arms of our Savior, Jesus. Run to him. Tonight, run to Jesus and find safety and safekeeping from a day that is to come, a day when the fullness of God's wrath is, is once more poured out, when this age is finally brought to an abrupt halt and the reign of righteousness begins eternally. Aren't you thankful for that? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. We thank you tonight for the power of your word, for the truthfulness of your word, for these moments to reflect on your goodness toward us. There's so much that this book holds forth for us, Lord, and I regret that we've not come to the end of 2 Peter and this reminder that you are patiently awaiting the filling up of uh, your wrath against the unrighteousness of the world, but also the establishment of the full sheepfold of your people. God, we're encouraged at the promise of Jesus that you indeed have sheep that are not yet of this fold. And so there is work for us yet to do. God, I pray that you would empower and enable us to do just that, that against the tide of unrighteousness around us, God, that we would persevere in obedience to the gospel. Help us to be faithful to your word. Guard us against error. Help us to have good discernment. Help us to know the true from the false, the good from the evil, the right from the wrong. Help us to walk worthy of our calling. Help us to grow in grace, Lord. Help us to be the kind of people who are characterized by an abiding faith in Jesus, goodness and self-control and love and deep affection for the brothers. Save us and keep us against that day. In Jesus' name, amen.